All right, welcome. Um, we're going to spend uh, the evening talking about um, determining the will of God in our lives. And so we'll spend a lot of time talking about, um, sometimes it's a lot better to talk about um, how not to do something. Uh, so we'll spend a lot of time on that and then we'll move into uh, maybe what are, some, what are some good principles to be guided by. Um, everything I'm going to share with you tonight, for the most part, is based on this little book, uh, Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will by Kevin DeYoung. And uh, if you want one of these books, you can just write your name on the list back there. It's $8, and I will order them uh, tonight, and we should have them either by Sunday or Monday. So um, you can order those uh, this evening. Um, so I want to start by asking a few questions, and hopefully you'll feel comfortable sharing. And um, and don't don't feel bad if you think if we get into this and you share something and you say, "Well, that doesn't quite match up." That's okay. That's why we're here. Um, so we want to we really want to um, to learn a lot tonight. So uh, the first thing I want to ask is, how did you make uh, how did you make the decision about your current job? How did you go about deciding that the job you are currently in was the one that you needed to take? If you can remember, or I guess if you're employed. <laughs> Tris? Okay. There's a passion and ability. Good. What else? Anyone else? <laughs> Can you remember, Donnie? I just remember that I was thinking of looking for a job and I wasn't seeking the Lord. I kept looking there with that decision. Okay. Well, how about for the married people in here? How did you decide who to marry? <laughs> Again, <that's> what? What? <laughs> <laughs> Donnie, you are here tonight for a reason, I do believe. <laughs> Let me move my notes so I can just look at you. <laughs> How'd you decide who to marry? Adam, you're, you just got married. How'd you decide to marry Bethany? <laughs> okay. All right. No, why'd you did it then? <laughs> why'd you did it? Convenience? Okay. Oh well. Okay. What about buying your current vehicle? How'd you decide to buy the car that you're driving? Donnie, you've got a nice, uh, nice ride. <laughs> Okay. 
And he does look good in that car. <laughs> so you did it to prove Blue wrong. <laughs> I bring these up because I want to um, to really focus on the fact that we have to make some really big decisions in life from time to time, and the Bible doesn't tell us specifically uh, exactly what to do. Um, but the good news is that I want to share with you tonight is that I know, I personally know God's will for your life, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, and... Um, I assume that you probably do too. Um, but many, many Christians are unable to make big decisions. And I, I think there are two reasons for that. And uh, he does unpack this a little bit more in the book. But there's sort of this diligent search that goes on in many Christians' lives to find out what is the will of God. And that looks like a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Um, but I think there's two reasons why uh, Christians have such a difficult time just making a decision. Uh, the first is unparalleled freedom. Uh, in other words, with so much and so many things to make decisions on, um, how do I know what's what? And so if I, for example, want to buy a new car, Good heavens, how many cars do we have to look at in one lot before we make a decision? There's, uh, there's like four different types of one make of vehicle. Um, so there, there are, are a lot of things that give us this unparalleled freedom that make decision-making very difficult. Uh, the second is indecision that passes as spiritual maturity. I don't make decisions because... I sit back for a long time and I pray about it and I pray about it and I pray about it and then I'm about to make a decision but I better pray about making that decision that I made a decision about. Okay, so indecision, passing that off as spiritual maturity. And so decisions never get made. And a part of all of this is this idea that we've heard time and again in evangelicalism, and that is that God loves you and what? Has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But I'm here to tell you tonight that he does not intend to tell you what that plan is, nor should you expect him to. No one ever told you that, huh? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but He does not intend to tell you what it is, and we're wrong to expect Him to tell us what it is. 
So we'll get to that in a little bit. First, I want to talk through th- the three, uh, three wills of God tonight. We'll reference these three wills several times. Um, and, and the first two of them are ones that we really want to pay attention to. And the third one is, is the one that we're going to try and refute tonight. Uh, the first is God's will of decree. So let's look at a few passages um, to see this. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 and verse 11. And if you need a Bible, there's some in a box under the table uh, over there. God's will of decree is uh, evidenced in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. It says, In Him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who, here it is, works all things according to the counsel of His will. So God's will of decree is that all things that happen, happen within His sovereign power and control. That God has decreed them, therefore they happen. Also look at Matthew chapter 10. We're going to flip around a lot, so... This is uh, sword drills tonight. Matthew 10, verse 29. You'll recognize this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. This shows the divine sovereign will of God that he has decreed that these things would happen. Nothing happens outside of the will of God. Part of this, too, is the fact that God is a micromanager. God micromanages everything. Hopefully we understand that to be God micromanaging stuff so our managers don't have to. (laughs) But... Let's look at this, Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do, here it is, Whatever your hand and your plan, your plan had predestined to take place. God micromanaged the very death of his own son. Every detail of it down to the person who would be involved. And I'll read very quickly Psalm 139, 16, which says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so we see even our unformed substance before we were ever created, God saw us and managed the very fact that we would become who we are. And just to put a cherry on top, Isaiah 46, 
verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring what? The end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So we see God's will of decree being how things are. If something is, it is because it is within the decree of God. It is God's will. The second of the three wills that we'll look at is God's will of desire. If I go too fast through any of this, please throw your hand up. And God's will of desire is simply God's commands. He desires, through giving us commands, that we are obedient to those commands. And we see this in several passages throughout the Scriptures. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Apostle John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what is John talking about? What is this will of God? Is he talking about the will of decree? Well, we know that if God has decreed it, it will happen. So there must be some other form of will that he's talking about. He's talking about the commands of God. Whoever does the commands of God abides forever. This is his will of desire. We see this also in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. We read in the benediction, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we see again, his prayer is that we would do the will of God. What is that will that he's talking about? He's talking about God's will of desire, that we would be able to fulfill what God desires for us, his commands. Another uh, to look at, and we won't read it now, would be Matthew 7, 21. Um, So if God's will of decree is how things are, his will of desire is how things are. Ought to be. So, what would be maybe the most glaringly obvious uh, will of uh, desire of God that we we refer to all the time? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is God's will of desire. I desire that you would do this, has said God, and so we see that throughout the Scriptures. Now, let's see these two working together in the Scriptures. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 29. 
we'll just look at one verse, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. It's the last verse of the chapter. It's in the Old Testament. All right, the verse reads, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. What are the secret things? Which of these wills are the secret things? Yes, God's decree. Do we know all that God has decreed? No. I don't have any idea what God has decreed for tomorrow or the in 10 years. That's all taken care of, but... It's a secret thing. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What are the things revealed to us? God's will of desire. Is there anything that God commands that He does not let us know about? Are there things that God wants us to do, but He hides from us and kind of puts us in this game where we have to try and figure it all out. Is that how God functions? It's not, and we all agree with that, but quite often the way we go about finding the will of God is that very cat and mouse game. I want to explain that to you. This is the third way that we see the wills of God. This is God's will of direction. God does have a secret will of direction. God desires that we do certain things at certain places at certain times. But you don't have to figure it out before you do something. You don't have to figure out God's will of direction. Of these three, what what do we need to know? God's desire. What does God tell us He wants us to do? What is He explicitly clear of? What His desire is. So, in other words, God's will is not, as He writes in the book, not a corn maze, a tightrope, or a bullseye. Okay? We don't, God doesn't throw us in this maze or uh, a labyrinth. You guys all played that thing? The labyrinth? The wooden? Alright. They're all looking at Sorry, generation gap. <laughs> You put a marble in the wooden thing and try and get it in the hole in the middle. Okay, never mind. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Finding the will of God is not like walking on a tightrope and trying to balance between, I don't know, should I do this or do that? Or if I lose balance, I'm going to fall off. Or trying to hit the bullseye and everything outside of that bullseye is off the mark. I need to I need to hit what do we hear all the time? I want to be right in the center of God's will. Well, what in the world does that mean? God does have a specific plan for our lives and we can be assured that he works all things together for our good in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he promises that in Romans 8:28. And looking back, we're often able to trace through things that happen, God's hand in bringing us where we are. We certainly can see through the circumstances of our life that God was at work doing these things, bringing them all together in Christ. But while we're free to ask God for wisdom, 
He does not burden us with the task of discovering His will of direction for our lives ahead of time. He doesn't burden us with the task of trying to figure out, should I go here or should I go there? Should I buy this or should I buy that? Should I take this job or should I take that job? What a burden. And yet we have the relief of knowing that God does not require that we find that out. It is not known to us. Here's a quote from a book called The Will of God as a Way of Life. He writes, Conventional understandings of God's will defines it as a specific pathway we should follow into the future. God knows what this pathway is, and He has laid it out for us to follow. Our responsibility is to discover the pathway, God's plan for our lives. We must discover which of the many pathways we could follow is the one we should follow, the one God has planned specifically for us. If and when we make the right choice, we will receive His favor, fulfill our divine destiny, and succeed in life. If we choose rightly, we will experience His blessing and achieve success and happiness. But if we choose wrongly, we may lose our way miss God's will for our lives and remain lost forever in an incomprehensible maze. Have you heard anyone talk about God's will in this way? I certainly have. Yes, all of these things are they're non-moral decisions. God has not given a command against any of these things that I can choose. But if I choose the wrong one, I'm going to be cursed. I will not receive the blessing of God. Let me give you an example, a story, and I'm, uh, uh, I'll, I may share a few stories depending on time just to kind of help, and I, I won't say anyone's names. <laughs> um, uh, I, do, I, I know a man, a very godly man, uh, just has really bad theology. Um, he told us a story uh, one time about um, a camper that he wanted to buy. Now, Let's just be clear. God doesn't have any kind of specific direction in the Scriptures about buying campers, right? Is this a moral decision? No. Buying a camper is not a moral decision. Well, he agonized and pleaded and uh, went through all this turmoil about, should I buy this? I really, really want it. I really want to have this thing. Uh, But I just don't know if this is God's will. And so he agonized over it, and eventually he never really felt at ease about it, but he went ahead and bought it anyway because he wanted it. And so he got it, and uh, it was three or four months later. It was sitting in his backyard. They were in Texas at the time, and a tornado ripped through uh, the, uh, uh, the community. Didn't touch the house, didn't touch the barn, but it picked the camper trailer up and threw it across the yard upside down, and there it sat in shambles. And so his conclusion, of course, was, I made the wrong decision. God did not want me to have that camper trailer. And so instead of me being obedient to God's will, God had to punish that decision. You ever heard a story like that? This is a true story. I'm not making this up. Beautiful. I love it. (laughs) I cannot tell you how many stories I've heard from well-meaning Christians about how they made non-moral decisions and God punished them because 
they must not have really found out what God's will is. But because we have great confidence in God's will of decree, another way to say that is we have great confidence in a sovereign God who works all things together for our good. We can radically commit ourselves to God's will of desire, be committed to doing what God commands us to do, without fretting over His hidden will of direction. Do I go down this path or this path? Do I buy this or that? Do I take this job or that job? In other words, God doesn't take any risks, and that frees us up to do it. God doesn't take risks so that we can. You all right? Go ahead. Uh, Okay. (laughs) You didn't pray about sitting in that chair, brother. So trusting God's will of decree is a good thing. Following God's will of desire is simply biblical obedience. But waiting on God's will of direction is a complete and total mess. It's an invitation to disappointment and indecision. It's very subjective. And we're going to get into that. But first I want to talk about why are we so desperate for this will of direction? Why are we so desperate to know what this is. Let me hear from you. Why do you think that is, Steve? Absolutely. That was my number one right here. We have a genuine desire to please God. So that's one reason why. Absolutely. What else? Okay. We don't want to make any wrong decisions in life. We don't want any hardship, right? That's why we want everything to be lollipops and whatever else you like. <laughs> what else? I think if we know the direction, we can get our sinful, prideful, selfish way. We can kind of say, okay, now that I know what I'm doing, I can manipulate it. I can control it. You know, rather than uh, letting His will play out in our own ways. That's what I... Sure. So some are worse than others, but really at the root, all of us are control freaks at some level, right? We want to be in control of our lives. What else? Afraid of risk. risk. Yeah. We want to be in control, but we're so schizophrenic that we're also afraid of risk. We're, We're cowards, right? I want to know everything. I want to be in control of everything, but I don't want to take any risks. I am a coward in many ways as well, okay? Uh, There are many reasons why we wish that God was more like uh, a magic eight ball. You guys know what I'm talking about there? We tracking? Okay, good. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they're limitless. (laughs) Shake it up, flip it over, and get a quick answer. We want God to be our magic eight ball. So we are desperate to find God's will of direction. A few I put down. Yes, we want to please God. But in trying to please God, we put ourselves through the misery of over-spiritualizing everything. Should I buy Crest or Colgate? Let me pray. 
Alright, we want to stop and think and pray and make sure this is the will of God. That I am putting a little bit uh, less um, crest on my mouth than, um, than Colgate. Uh, perhaps it's timidity. There are some very timid Christians in the world. I, uh, we're reminded of uh, in First Thessalonians, Paul addresses these people. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, he writes, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Okay, so there's some timidity there. It is very clearly identified by Paul that they are in the church. And he says, admonish their idleness, encourage them in their faint-heartedness, help them when they are weak. But in all of this, of course, be patient with them. Okay, so we see some timidity at work in seeking the will of direction. Why do we want to know what's up and coming? Because we're too timid to take any steps. Also, and this was mentioned Searching for perfect fulfillment. But as we've all realized, if you've lived for more than a day, life is not always fun. And we shouldn't expect it to be. God did not promise us that everything would be wonderful all the time. Contrary to popular belief, the best life we live is not now. It is later. It is in heaven. Yes, that was a reference to a very bad book. (laughs) It is not always fun. Don't expect it to be. But when we're searching for God's will of direction, it's because in some way we want to have some perfect fulfillment so that we don't have to struggle or suffer or go through anything difficult, as if knowing the future was going to change that. Uh, Fourth, I think simply that there are just too many choices in life sometimes. We can be uh, we can be ones who want to know God's will of direction. Just tell me you ever been in those kind of conversations. You hear this decision and that and maybe wives in here probably can relate to this really well. There's 15 things going on and you just want to throw your hands up and say, just please make a decision. We just want to ask God. Just please make a decision. Tell me and I'll go ahead and do that. I don't want to work through all the problem and the trouble of figuring out which is better than which and why. And so we just have so many choices that we don't know what to do. And fifth, and we mentioned this also, that we are often cowardly. We want God to tell us what to do so that everything will turn out pleasant for us. Tell me who to marry, where to live, where to go to school, what job to take. Show me the future so I don't have to take any risks at all. Let me give you an example of uh, when, this, um, when, when the opposite approach was taken. Uh, go to the book of Esther and chapter 4. Now, remember, there was a decree the Jews were going to be murdered. And Mordecai came to Esther and said, you need to go talk to uh, you need to go talk to the king. And she said, hold on, I haven't been summoned by the king. So if I go to talk to him, uh, he very well could 
cut my head off um, because he hasn't summoned me. And, um, and so here's what happens. Esther chapter 4, verse 13. Then Mordecai, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Here was his response to her when she said, I don't know if I can go. <clears throat> Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you will come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Okay, so do you see a stark difference here between the way that we often go about finding God's will of direction and the way that Esther approached the situation? Did they pray? Yeah, they prayed. They fasted all night long. Did she know what was going to end up? Well, no, obviously not. She said in the end, if I perish, I perish. In other words, I don't know. I could go in there and the second I step foot in there, the king could kill me right there in an instant. But if I don't do anything, nothing will be done. So what have I gained? There is great risk. We have to ask ourselves, if we were in that situation, what would we do? Would we stop and, man, I really need to agonize over this for about six months and then be indecisive in the end. No, we're called to act on what we know at the time. And so this is what she knew. And Mordecai had a great outlook on this. Perhaps, I don't know, but just maybe, you might have been called to be here for just as time as this. But guess what? We don't know until we go ahead with it. So, sorry, <laughs> you might die, but please... Uh, let's figure this thing out. I think, too, that our prayers so often are not, Lord, make me wise, give me discernment, help me to know what you require as you have decreed and what you have told me you desire. Instead, our prayers are so often, God, just make everything okay. Or help me to know that everything is okay. So we want God to comfort us in those times, which is not always a bad thing. But instead of asking God to remind us of the truth of the gospel and help us to act on that, we just want to know that everything is okay. So what are some of the ways that we may seek uh, to find uh, God's will. What are some of the ways that we look for to find God's will of direction? What are some of the things that you've heard? Maybe you've said them. That's fine. We'll all come clean. I've said some of these, uh, and and we'll work we'll work through these things. Um, he has a bunch on the cover of the book, but I want to hear from you first. When we're trying to find God's will of direction, we're talking about that or thinking through that. What are some of the what are some of the things that we say? Okay, I'm looking for the open door. God open the door for this or God close the door for that. Okay, what else? Okay, we want to hear from other people um, uh, about certain things, so we want their confirmation. Good, what else? 
Think more radically. Maybe there's some of these that you may not have done, but I promise you they happen. Okay. <laughs> a lightning bolt rides your heels. Uh, that's probably something I haven't heard because I haven't spent much time on the ranch. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you might want to move a few steps away. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> yeah, sure. When... Uh, uh, it, during in his conversion, what's that? Yeah, yeah. What else? Okay. Okay. So um, I was just uh, I was just so engrossed in this habitual sin, and I couldn't get out of it. And I needed a word from God. And I looked up, and lo and behold, I didn't know how I got there, but I was in front of a stop sign. And so God's sign for me was just stop. Okay? So we look for signs sometimes to try and figure those things out. The clock said 11:12, So I went to the book of John, chapter 11, verse 12, and this is what it said. Okay? Um, <coughs> it happens. What else? Okay. Man, I'm glad you said that. I prayed about it and I prayed about it and I just had a peace about it. <laughs> okay. I think that's a good reason, Donnie. <laughs> the water pump broke and uh, so I need a new car. Yes. <laughs> that's the direction we're headed. <laughs> right. <laughs> So what do these really look like sometimes? We say, I'm searching for an open door, which might mean maybe. I've been unemployed for six months and I posted my resume on monsters.com, but I am just not getting anyone to call me. It must not be any open doors out there. So I'm going to go ahead and sit back and sleep in and do whatever. And If God's going to open a door, someone will call. Or perhaps, and I kid you not, this does happen in some circles. Um, remember when Gideon laid out a fleece and woke up the next morning and there was dew on the fleece? That was his sign from God. So <clears throat> I've heard often, and Kevin DeYoung admits to this in his youth, he took a sweater from a drawer and laid it on the floor of his bedroom and asked for a sign from God that... There would be dew on his sweater in the morning when he woke up. And he knew if that was there, then that would have been God's will. But right before he did it, he had a second thought because he realized that the humidity in his room was not all that much. So he asked God instead to keep his sweater dry. <laughs> it was a sign from God. Uh, as Steve mentioned, I just... I had a peace in my heart about this. I know I don't have an extra $25,000, and I'm already $250 short every month, but I have a peace in my heart about buying this boat, and that must be from the Lord, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. He will provide. Right? How often do we hear about determining the will of God by having peace in our heart? Well, guess what? I don't know about you, but I have a hard time ever feeling super comfortable about signing the line for a mortgage loan. 
you're just never going to have a great warm fuzzy about, I don't mind giving you hundreds of thousands of dollars for the next 30 years. I know I'm always going to have a job and the income is going to be great and there's not going to be any problems. Sure, sign me up. Okay, you might have a great peace in your heart about that, but you're not normal. <laughs> okay? <coughs> and so we have all of these ways that we seek to find God's will. Let me give you a story here that he, that, uh, he has in here. Man, 91 years old, dies waiting for the will of God. This is the title. Tupelo, Mississippi. Walter Houston, described by family members as a devoted Christian, died Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him clear direction about what to do with his life. He hung around the house and prayed a lot, but just never got that confirmation, his wife Ruby says. Sometimes he thought he heard God's voice, but then he wouldn't be sure and he'd start the process all over again. Houston, she says, never really figured out what his life was about, but felt content to pray continuously about what he might do for the Lord. And whenever he was about to take action, he would pull back because he didn't want to disappoint God or go against him in any way, Ruby says. He was very sensitive to always remaining in God's will. That was primary to him. Friends say they liked Walter, though he seemed not to capitalize on his talents. Walter had a number of skills he never got around to using, said longtime friend Timothy Burns. He worked very well with wood and had a storyteller side to him, too. I always told him, take a risk. Try something new if you're not happy. But he was too afraid of letting the Lord down. To his credit, they say, Houston, who worked mostly as a handyman, was able to pay off the mortgage on the couple's modest home. At the end of his life, all he had to show was a paid-off mortgage. Well... He admits in there that this is satire. The man did not truly sit around for 70 years and do nothing. But we could see how that would happen with many modern approaches to finding God's will of direction. I just don't know. Well, let me talk about the errors of this common approach to finding God's will. And then we're going to talk about a better way. And then we'll have some time for discussion at the end. What is wrong with these things? What is wrong for sitting around and waiting for a sign or um, (laughs) seeing dew on a fleece or whatever it might be in your situation? (coughs) Um, We're going to talk about five things. Uh, First is that the attention of these things is all focused on non-moral decisions, right? If they're moral decisions, what do we have to make a determination about them? The Bible, God's will of desire. So anytime we're saying, I'm seeking to find the will of God, well, uh, is it a moral, ethical decision? No. Um, Well, okay. (laughs) What are we going on here? We're focusing all our attention on things that God has not spoken to. The most important issues for God that we see in the scriptures are moral purity, theological fidelity, compassion, joy, our witness as believers, faithfulness to Christ, hospitality, love, worship, faith. These things that we see in the scriptures time and time again. But the problem is that we tend not to focus our attention on these things, but on everything else. 
So we obsess over all the things that God has not mentioned in the scriptures, while by contrast, we spend little time on the things that God has already revealed to us in the Bible. And if you're motivated by being biblical and striving to glorify God, then your career choice is not a moral decision. Right? If our purpose in life is to be biblical and to glorify God, then whether I work here or work there is not a moral decision. Because if I'm living biblically, I'm not going to work at the adult movie store. Okay? I'm not going to be a hitman. Okay? Those issues don't come into play at this point. And so whether or not I work here or there is not a moral decision. The Bible simply does not address every single decision that we must make in this life. God did not intend it to. So I contend that we should spend more time trying to figure out how to act justly and love mercifully and walk humbly with our God. Micah 6, 8 instructs these things. So how can I act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God as a doctor or a lawyer and spend less time worrying about whether God wants me to be a doctor or a lawyer? These are both great things or can be great things, but things that could also be used for evil. So if we walk into either of those with biblical motives, with a desire to glorify God, then the decision is not necessarily, God, do you want me to do this or that? The decision is, what am I gifted to do? What am I passionate about? What do I think I would enjoy more? Okay, then do it. And we'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. One of the other errors of this approach of finding God's will of direction, looking for all of these signs and everything else that we look to, there's an implication here that God is sneaky. That God has a wonderful plan for your life, but He's not going to show you what it is, and He wants you to find it out, and He holds you accountable if you're not able to. So God is a tricky, sneaky little deity who plays hide-and-seek with us, right? Isn't that ultimately what it is? If we look at the way that we seek to determine God's will, we're saying God lays all these decisions before us, all non-moral decisions, None of them are spoken about in God's will of desire. But if I choose the wrong way, He's going to punish me. He doesn't tell me in His Word what to do. It's simply going to be based on whether or not I feel peace in my heart about it. So, do we serve a God who's going to punish us because we have a little heartburn, we think, but it's actually non-peace in our heart? Okay, so the implication is God is a sneaky God. Third, it encourages preoccupation with the future. What does the apostle, uh, what does James, uh, the brother of Jesus, what does he say about being preoccupied with the future? James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. James writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So worrying about the future is not simply some kind of character tick that we have. It is ultimately the sin of unbelief. It's an indication that our hearts are not resting in the promises of God. And so everything is tied up in what will happen, how will I get there, instead of saying, if the Lord wills, this will happen. If not, so be it. He is speaking here of God's will of decree. (coughs) And so... These methods of seeking the will of God encourages a preoccupation with the future. Fourth, it undermines personal responsibility and accountability and initiative. And that looks a lot like, and I know we've all heard this from time to time. We may have even said it. God told me to do this. I don't really like it, but God told me to do it, so I have to do it. Okay, so it's God's fault. Let's look at an example he gives in page 50 here. He says, I'll never forget my poor beleaguered roommate talking with me after he took a risk and told a nice young lady that he liked her. They went on a long walk and he was pretty sure he would reciprocate his declaration of affection. But it turned out she wasn't interested. She was a sweet girl, a good Christian. She didn't mean to have bad theology. But instead of just saying, I'm not interested or I don't like you or quit stalking me or something, she went all spiritual on him. I've been praying a lot about you, she murmured. And the Holy Spirit told me no. My confused roommate asked, no, no, never. Poor guy. He got rejected not only by this sweet girl, but also by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) The third person of the Trinity took a break from pointing people to Jesus to tell this girl not to date my roommate. I didn't know that was in the Spirit's job description, but I bet at any Christian school there are scores of men and women blaming God for their breakups. Whether it's the Holy Spirit saying no, never, or Jesus apparently wanting to date a myriad of girls on every campus, God's will is frequently employed as an excuse for difficult relationship decisions. This is the sort of accountability dodging jargon we want to avoid. Haddon Robinson writes this, If we ask, how can I know the will of God, we may be asking the wrong question. The scriptures do not command us to find God's will for most of life's choices, nor do we have any passage instructing us on how it can be determined. Equally significant, the Christian community has never agreed on how God provides us with such special revelation. Yet we persist in searching for God's will because decisions require thought and sap energy. We seek relief from the responsibility of decision-making, and we feel less threatened by being passive rather than active by making important choices. So when it comes to most of our daily decisions and even a lot of big decisions that we make, God expects and encourages us to make decisions, confident that He has already determined how our choices work within His sovereign will. Passivity is a plague amongst believers. 
Do you really want a fellow believer who is a plumber? We show up here on the Lord's Day, we walk into the sanctuary, and there is water shooting up out of the toilet about three feet high, going everywhere. And we go up to the plumber in the church and we say, Earl, we need you to fix this, brother. There's water going everywhere. And Earl says, I do have the skills to do this. I know I could handle it right now and call this thing quits. I need to go pray about it. I need to make sure that this is God's will that I fix this toilet. Okay, a silly example, but our passivity leads to those types of things. It's not just that we don't do anything, it's that we also feel spiritual about not doing anything. We imagine that our inactivity is patience and sensitivity in God's leading us. And at times, it might be. I don't want to downplay that completely, but most of the time, it's probably because we are just lazy. Fifth, the problem here is that it enslaves us to hopeless subjectivism. We are enslaved to subjectivism. Most big decisions, as I mentioned already, will leave us feeling a little bit unsettled. That doesn't mean that the Lord is withholding peace so that you'll back out. So subjectively trying to determine God's will of direction uh, should not be our decision-making process. It's a dead-end street. So, for example, is going this way, is this an open door, or is it a way that Satan may be tempting me? There's always an opposite end to this. Is it a closed door, or is it simply a way that God is testing my steadfastness and resolve? There's always an opposite. And anyway, since it's so subjective, how does all of this really work? Ultimately, if you read enough books about this, of people who think this is the way to go about determining the God, God's will, all of them are eventually going to end up telling you that it's a matter of trying on answers and second-guessing ourselves a lot. It's a whole game of trial and error. Eventually, I'll be so sensitive to God's leading that I will know how to determine God's will, but until then, I have to be punished a lot, and I have to be um, listening for voices and looking for signs. An example of this, one author wrote about how he went on a horse uh, on a horse ride, and uh, he had an accident. He got thrown off the horse, and he got injured pretty badly. And now he has to live with regret because of this. And here's uh, basically what he had said was that he went to the horse, and he asked the Lord if he should ride the horse, and he felt peace over that, but he never asked where he should ride the horse. And so he rode the horse in the wrong place at the wrong time, and therefore the horse threw him off, and he was injured, and now regrets that he forgot to pray about where. Hmm. He even remembers praying over the horses, but doesn't feel in the time, now that he looks back at it, that that was actually working. He should have called it quits right then, but he went ahead anyway because he just wanted to go for a ride. I call that doing something like a normal person would do, but he didn't pray properly and therefore the God punished him. God punished him by throwing him off the horse 
He will never do that again. It brings up the question, would God really spare us from all accidents and all pain and all suffering if we simply asked Him enough particulars and prayed hard enough at the start of the day? If something goes bad in our lives, do we really need the added burden of feeling like all of this could have simply been prevented if I would have just prayed a little bit more? And how do we do His will anyway other than probing some subjective feelings in our gut that inevitably lead to a lot of hand-wringing and second-guessing? If there really is a perfect will of God that we're meant to discover in which we will find tremendous relief and fulfillment, why does it seem that everyone who's looking for God's will is in such bondage and confusion all the time? We do not want to be enslaved to hopeless subjectivism in finding the will of God. So let's look at a better way. Go to Matthew chapter 6. In verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, he will, not much, will, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We must fight to believe that God has mercy for today's trouble. And no matter what may come tomorrow, God will have new mercies for tomorrow's trouble. It's Lamentations 3. God's way is not to show us that, uh, to show us what tomorrow looks like, or even to tell us what decisions we are to make tomorrow. That's not His way because that's not the way of faith. God calls us to be faithful. God cares for us. It's the very thing that this passage tells us, more than you will ever know. And so we shouldn't worry. He doesn't call on us to seek a divine will before scheduling another semester of school or whether or not I'm going to go bowling versus playing putt-putt. He calls us to run hard after Him and His commands and His glory. That is what He wills. That is His will of desire. That is how things ought to be. So, a few examples. God's will is living holy and set-apart lives, right? 
We see that all through the Scriptures. God's will is that we are to always rejoice and pray and give thanks to God. God's will is that we are bearing fruit as believers and we are knowing more and more of God. God's will is that we are being filled with the Holy Spirit. We are walking in the Spirit. God's way is wisdom. God's way is wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, he writes, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. God's way is wisdom, that we would ask the Lord for wisdom. And we learn from the scriptures that he will give it. Now, look, it's important to understand, and I'm not saying that it's bad to pray for non-ethical, non-moral decisions. It's not a bad thing. It is a good thing because God guides our decision making. He doesn't expect us, though, to discover God's future plan. I will ask for God's guidance in making big decisions. But I don't expect in that that I'm going to get a letter in the mail from the Lord telling me exactly what to do. I won't. And it's okay. Because He gives us wisdom. He gives us wisdom. This is the very thing that the writer of Hebrews addressed in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God's will was made known through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So he spoke, he's speaking to us these days by his son. Well, how do we receive that which the son has spoken to us? Where is that? What's that? By faith, we believe it, but where do we find it? In the Word, in the Scriptures. God guides us by the Scriptures. He guides us by His invisible invisible providence at all times. God is working all things together. He's not whispering secret, secret plans in our ears. God has, in the past, guided by angels and dreams and inner promptings, by the mouth of a donkey, by a burning bush, by writing on the wall. God has shown Himself capable of guiding His people and communicating with them however He sees fit. But in these last days, God is guiding us by His Son in the Word of God. God spoke through the life, death, and resurrection and teaching of Jesus. God spoke through the apostles and their associates who were commissioned to testify about Jesus. And God continues to speak to us through His Son, through the Holy Spirit, giving illumination to the Scriptures. And this is the assumption of Hebrews 1 through 4. God can speak in many ways. In these last days, He's speaking by His Son, And God speaks to us by His Son through the Holy Spirit, speaking by the living and active Word of God. 
Which brings us to the last statement concerning God's guidance. God does not promise to use any other means to guide us, nor should we expect Him to. God's means of guiding us to understand His will is His Word. We have no promise that God will speak to us apart from the Spirit speaking through His Word. So how do we do that? And we'll end with this, and then we'll have a little time for discussion before we break. Let me give you two quick examples. Two big decisions that we all uh, face in life. The first, getting a job. How do we do this? If we want to do God's will of desire without knowledge of His will of direction, how do we figure out where should I work? Four things, and we'll apply these to both situations. First, search the Scriptures. Is this a job that can glorify God? Is, is the job being a hitman? Uh, probably not going to glorify God in that job. Is it working at a convenience store or a retail shop or uh, the doctor's office or whatever? Can I glorify God in that job? If it is not an immoral job, then the answer is yes. Will it provide for your family? The scriptures tell us if uh, men specifically, if we're not providing for our families, then we are worse than unbelievers. So we want to provide for our families. And a part of this as well is... I want to know where I can be helped in community and the study of the scriptures and everything else. I think it's important to ask of any job decision, is a church available nearby that I can be a part of? Sometimes this is the last thing people ask. This should be one of the first. If I go here and do this job, is there a church nearby that I can plug into and be a part of? So search the scriptures. Second, get wise counsel. If you hate kids, but there's a job opportunity to be a kindergarten teacher, you probably need a friend to say, ah, bro, you're probably not the right one for the job. I don't, there's just something about you. I don't see that working out. So we need to seek wise counsel and say, can you see me doing this? And in that, we need to be teachable. We need to ask questions like, am I qualified? Do I have the proper training? If all of these can be answered affirmatively, then we have received some wise counsel. Third, pray. Our prayer shouldn't be, God, what should I do? Guess what? He's not going to tell you. We need to pray for things like, Lord, help me to be honest in my interviews with my employer and them honest with me. Give them a true picture of who I am and me a true picture of who they are. Lord, give me a right heart that I'm not motivated by my pride. Help me to not make any decisions based on fear or anxiety. Help me to make all my decisions based on faith and hope and love. This is praying to follow God's will of desire, not to determine His will of direction. And fourth, make a decision. Just do something. Most jobs are great. They pay the bills. They put food on the table. Get a job and don't be lazy. <coughs> he writes this in the book. 
Nothing is impossible with God, so go ahead and run hard after your big plans and take a shot at your dream job. But remember that in almost any job, God can be pleased with your work so long as you're taking pleasure in him as you do it. Just get a job and do it and work hard and fulfill God's will of desire. Search the scriptures, get wise counsel, pray, and make a decision. So we can apply those to getting married. This goes contrary to all of worldly wisdom on this matter. First, search the scriptures. If I go to the scriptures, they're not going to tell me who to marry. They're going to tell me about the type of person that I should marry. And so when I look to uh, a woman or a, a Christian young lady looks to a man, they need to be looking for one that the Bible talks about, their character, their belief in Christ and how that plays out in their lives. Secondly, wise counsel. What do friends and family, my parents most importantly, what do they think about this person and the possibility of marriage between us? If everyone is raising these red flags and saying, I don't think that's a very good idea, then we should probably step back and ask a few more questions. Thirdly, pray. God, make my motives pure in this. I don't want to be motivated by lust or uh, knowing this person is going to make a lot of money. I'm scared of being single my whole life. I want to be honest in displaying myself as I truly am and not putting on a show. And we should be praying as individuals to be a right or a good husband or wife. And fourth, make a decision. Get married. What is the holdup if all the right criteria are met? Guys especially really struggle with this. Don't wait for God to create a wife out of your ribs, okay? He did that with Adam. He's not going to do that with you. Here's what he says in the book about this decision. Gentlemen, there are wonderful Christian girls waiting for you to act, well, like a man. Stop waiting for romantic lightning to strike. Stop waiting for the umpteenth green light. Stop hanging out every night without ever making your intentions clear. Go ask a girl on a date or ask her to court or whatever you think is the appropriate language. But do something. If you want to be single, that's great. Jesus was single, and I hear it can be a pretty good gig. But if you want to get married, do something about it. Take a chance. Risk rejection. Be the relational and spiritual leader God has called you to be. So this really goes against the idea that out there somewhere is the one. Yes, God has secret providence, and in that there is a person that he knows we're going to marry because he knows the beginning from the end. But thinking that there is a specific person out there who is our soulmate assumes that affection is the glue that holds a marriage together. But do you ever wonder throughout the scriptures why we don't ever see the people in the Bible dating for seven years, doing this and that with no real plan for what's going to happen, and then in the end agonizing over whether or not this is the one? No, a lot of times it was, uh, you're a guy, and you're not married, and you're a lady, and you're not married, and now you are. Make it work. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your marriage. 
Okay, that's what we see in the scriptures. Why? Because God has given the criteria, but he does not give the specifics. You know how I know my wife is the one? Because I married her. But guess what? And I told her I was going to say this, and that's okay. And she's okay with it. My wife is just a girl, and I am just a guy. And ultimately, she could have married someone else, and I could have married someone else, and they would have been the one. But we married each other. And so I'm the one for her, and she's the one for me. The biblical criteria were met. We got married. Yes, I love my wife very, very much. But if she wasn't the one, it would have been someone else. And Lord willing, it would have worked out quite well. Okay? So we need not agonize over these big decisions in the ways that we do. Seek the will of desire of God, how things ought to be, and trust that in doing so, God's will of direction will be worked out perfectly. Now, I've taught for a long time, and I appreciate your humoring me. I want to know of any comments or questions or if I made you more confused than ever, or hopefully there's some relief offered in all of this for some of us if we've really struggled with this very area. What are your, what are your thoughts?